Hi, and welcome to the Jimboomba Baptist Church Sermon of the Week. We hope that you will be encouraged and challenged by this message. Is anybody hungry right now? It's going to be a long service if you're hungry right now. Okay, Sean. Someone get Sean a sandwich. Oh, if you're thirsty, by the way, you go up the back. There's some water there. Um, I remember when I was a kid, and I may have even shared this story um, because it's fairly unique for me, but I was a kid and I was over my nana's house and she was serving lunch. I can't even remember what it was, but it was tasty and I ate a lot and I ate a lot, made sure I was full and I was very full and satisfied. Um, But nana makes this killer. Uh, Nana used to make this killer Apple crumble. Who loves apple crumble? Thank you. Yes, good, good. I've got the majority. I'm on site. Excellent. Uh, I don't understand you who don't, but um, apple crumble, delicious. And she would do the crumbly part just right, you know? Like, who's getting hungry right now? And it's just that, just that right consistency. Who likes the soft crumble? Who's soft? Okay, who likes the hard, like more crispy crumble? Yeah, I kind of like both. And she'd do both. Like, it was kind of soft and a bit crumbly on top. Like, yum. So, after this big lunch that I was already quite full and very satisfied with, I ate a lot of dessert. And with custard. Who has custard? Who has ice cream? Who has both? Okay, good. All right. So, I I had a beautiful big lunch, satisfied, full. And then, because I was hungry. So I ate, ate, ate until I wasn't hungry. And then I ate dessert and ate. And this was the first time in my life, and I don't think I've really had it since, where not long after eating dessert, don't worry, this is not a nasty story, (laughs) but not long after eating dessert, I just was getting pains. I I was getting pains in my tummy. And the pains got worse and worse. And I had to go and lie down. And I was lying down for a couple hours. And I realized that the reason I had pains was simply what? I ate too much. That's the definition of gluttony right there. If you ever, has anyone ever been hungry and you've eaten until you've eaten too much? Yeah? How many people eat? Until you're not hungry. None of you? Oh, well, when do you stop? Wait, who, who, who keeps eating until they're not hungry? All right, what do you guys do then? I don't know. <laughs> I'm kind of like, what else is there, right? Or till you're satisfied. Do you keep eating till you're satisfied? Okay, right, right. Like, when we eat, when we're hungry, we eat so that we're not hungry anymore, Right? Like, that's the God-given drive. Now, I want you to talk to your neighbor. This is a tricky question. What kind of things do you eat? Now, eat physically or metaphorically, okay? That actually don't quench your hunger or satisfy your hunger, but actually make you more hungry. Can you think of things that you eat, either physically eating or or maybe it's metaphorically consuming, that actually doesn't satisfy the hunger that got you there to eat or consume, but rather makes you more hungry. That's tricky, isn't it? Turn to your neighbor. 
have a conversation. Can you think of anything? Yell it out. Dark chocolate. Dark chocolate. Chocolate, anybody? Now, this only works because chocolate comes in small pieces, I reckon. If it came in big pieces, we would actually be full or sick <laughs> from eating enough. But definitely chocolate, if you just start, oh, you could just keep going, right? Yeah. Anybody? Yeah. Anything else? Ice cream, Ice cream popcorn, yes. Knowledge. Yeah, okay. You start learning things. And you just get this hunger and you just want to keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah. Any other kind of things that you're thinking of? Salad? No, I don't eat salad. <laughs> it's true. It only makes you hungrier. It never fills you up. Salad. All right. But it's good for you. So you eat your salad. Uh, what about TV? You have a craving to watch a good series, yeah, Netflix or something, and you stream and you're kind of hungry, right? You desire it, and you start, but you just want more. Like, the more, it doesn't satisfy your hunger. It increases your hunger, doesn't it? Yeah. YouTube, don't do it. Ban yourself from YouTube. I've banned myself <laughs> at times. I've banned myself at YouTube. Like, because it's just, you get this like, ah, oh, I just have the desire to, you know, but it only increases the desire. Anything else? Bold and beautiful. Bold and beautiful, oh, no. Okay, all right. <laughs> Are there any games that you get involved in? And you're like, I just want to play this one game, right? And you start, but then the hunger increases, increases. What about a healthy, what was that? Yahtzee, okay. All right, old school, real dice, right. <laughs> uh, what about a healthy, more healthy uh uh, habit. What about exercise? Start exercising and get your endorphins and you want to do it more and more, you know. I've never struggled with that one. Um, what about buying stuff? Anybody? You're like, ah, oh, I just want to buy something. And you start buying and then, ah, oh, but the hunger doesn't go away when you buy one thing. It increases, doesn't it? And it, it kind of, a lot of these things are bad, aren't they? It's not, it's not great. Sometimes, sometimes, for me, it was like building stuff. Like if I built something, I'm like, ah, look, you know, and you get your endorphins or dopamine hit or whatever chemicals going off going, wow, I'm proud of myself, you know. Let's do another thing. What else can I build or, or you know, achieve? Achievement. That's something, isn't it? Achievement. You're like, ah, I've, I've done this. But it actually doesn't satisfy the hunger. It creates greater hunger. When I was dating Jade... Uh, I'd catch up with her and we'd go on a date and even though we spent hours together and, we, and then we parted ways, guess what? I wanted to see her more. There was a greater hunger and nothing has changed at all. And um, the reality is this, there are some things that increase our hunger. It's been said, and I believe, that in the kingdom of God, and it, when, when it comes to the things of God, you get more hungry by eating. When it comes to the kingdom of God and the things of God, you often get more hungry 
by eating. Like when you first sense God really move you in some way or speak or, or something or uh, you, something happens to your heart where you're like, wow. And a hunger grows for encountering and interacting with God in those kinds of ways. The first time you encounter his supernatural peace, you're like, wow. And it doesn't just go, oh, well, now I'm satisfied, and you walk away. No, most of the time, it, it grows this hunger in our hearts to more constantly know that peace of God that passes understanding. When we first encounter God, do something quite amazing, a supernatural, spectacular, maybe even a miracle or healing, we're not like, wow, now I'm satisfied. I've, he- I've seen something in my life that was supernatural. No, it creates a hunger and a desire to see more and f- to pursue God to, to do more. And because a, poss- a realm of possibility has been opened that maybe wasn't there before. When we experience the joy of God by His Holy Spirit, you know that it says that about Jesus in the Gospels, that he, at one point, it says clearly, it says that he had joy in the Holy Spirit. And when we experience the joy of the Holy Spirit, remember the love, the Spirit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy. So this is when God is doing special work, his presence is especially present, and we sense his joy, and it fills us with a joy and gladness. Like we don't walk away going, that was nice, and, you know, never to be again. It opens our hearts up, doesn't it? To be more hungry, to experience and walk with this God who brings joy. When we experience God's love, the same thing. It opens our heart to say, wow, I didn't even know some of this stuff was possible. I didn't know this side of heaven, this side of eternity, this side of new creation, this kind of experience was possible. And it doesn't satisfy our hunger It makes us more hungry for the kingdom of God and the things of God, for God himself. And I want to read this morning a passage that could possibly stir our hunger for God. If we like read this for what it says, I think it would stir the hunger of God in us. Now, I believe this kind of passage could be a crowd splitter. And I'll explain what that means a little bit later as we go on. Uh, Because I think it can reveal what's going on in our heart. Okay? So the passage is from the Sermon on the Mount. You will know it when you hear it. Jesus is teaching. And he's saying a lot of different things. And this is just a one-liner I've picked out that I felt for this morning. And I think we often just read over the top of this and go, oh, that's nice, Jesus, because he's saying some pretty dramatic things. And when Jesus says dramatic things, we either need to stop and pause and be in awe and wonder or maybe with a lot of questions or typically what we Westerners do is we just keep reading. (laughs) We keep reading like, wow, that's big. Yeah, well, Jesus says big things. Yeah, and we keep going. But I want us to pause on this and get the gravity of what Jesus is saying. 
So I reckon if we get the gravity of what Jesus is saying here, we'll get hungry. And if you're worried that you're not hungry for God at all, like don't worry. Like He's good at creating hunger in us. And I think this kind of thing that Jesus says is a great way to create a hunger in our hearts for God. Are you ready? If you want to read it in your own Bible, it's from Matthew chapter 5. And it's, I'm just going to read one of these Beatitudes. It's Matthew 5, 8. Are you ready? Blessed or blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. And here's the kicker. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Just let that settle in. They will see God. They, they will see God. Like, think about that. What's seeing God? They will see God. Does this make you hungry? At least it makes me curious. They will see God. Jesus, what did you mean? They will see God? Blessed are the pure in heart? That must be nobody, right? Because no one sees what? Who wants to see God? Who wants to see God? Do you really? Who wants to see God? Can you see God? We might say, yeah, I want to see God. I want to see God. Don't know what that means yet, but I want to see God, yeah. Like whatever that could be and contain, like whatever that could entail, I want to see God, I think. Yeah, I do. Like there might be hesitations. There might be a lot of questions, but I want to see God. Is that an actual possibility that we can see God? Jesus seems to think so. The pure in heart will see God. Is that just a future in heaven? You know, what, you know new creation? Kind? Do, do you want to see God? Can we see God? I think that's... When we read this kind of stuff, if we don't read over it, I think one of the first things we go is we, we relegate it to a different time and space continuum. Like Jesus is just talking about some you know, otherworldly experience that's not for us, at least now, no. Right? Or we just say, we know, and theologically, we can't see God. Right? No one can see God. Isn't God invisible anyway? You can't see him. Like, I can't see, I see you, but I can't see God. And we talk about God being present, but we can never see him, right? So what's it even mean to see God? Is it even possible to see God? Is it possible as a, you know, metaphysical thing to see God? Or are we just going to take Jesus' first phrase, blessed are the pure in heart, and go, well, no one's pure anyway. So therefore, we don't have to worry about that difficult part of seeing God because no one can do it anyway. That's kind of where we go, isn't it? That's kind of where we go. So let me first like, address this like, question, can we see God? And what's that mean? 
Can we see God? I mean, personally, I'm just going to go with Jesus. Like, whatever else I read in the Bible, I'm going to go with Jesus and make sure my interpretation of everything else fits his teaching, right? I think that's good theology. It's called Christocentric theology, that Jesus is the center of good theology and everything should be interpreted through his lens, all right? Every good theologian would agree. They might differ on how that plays out, but they would agree. So Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. But we've been told so much that no one can see God, even in the Bible, right? So in Exodus 33, we read this, uh, God talking to Moses, but he said, you cannot see my face. No one can see me and live. Okay, Moses is asking, show me your glory. And he's like, yeah, but you can't actually see me. You'd die. Uh, but I'm going to cover you and you'll see my back parts as I walk past, you know. So there's this, okay, Moses can't see God. It's not possible, otherwise he'll die. But God can show him kind of part of himself. Like, and of course, that's metaphor when God's covering him with his hand and showing his back. You can't see my face. Does God have a physical hand and a back? Like, you know, God is spirit. God is spirit. But we're told here, no one can see God's face and live. So how is it possible to see God? Let's go to the New Testament. The New Testament says the same thing in 1 Timothy 6.16. Timothy says, God, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, Oh, this is getting confusing, isn't it? To him be honour and might forever. And in Timothy 1.17, Timothy's already said that God is invisible. So he's saying no one's seen God and no one can see God. See, and we get this theology like, okay, is it even possible? Like, what's, God, what's Jesus mean then when he says they will see God? What's going on here? Or maybe it's uh, John, the Apostle John writing in 1 John 4.12. He says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So John's going down that line that, look, we can't see him. God told Moses, you can't really see me or not see me and live. And Timothy's saying, God lives in unapproachable light. You can't see him. No one's seen him and no one will. And John says, yeah, no one's seen God. And Timothy says he's invisible, so he can't be seen. But they will see God. What's going on here? What's going on here? And now often uh, people will then just go, well, this is a new creation thing. Jesus says, blessed are pure in heart. And this only happens in new creation, of course, they would say. Um, for they will see God. Yeah, because eventually people will see God. Like Moses couldn't see God then because that's old covenant. And if you saw him, he'd die. But now, you know, once, once we're in glorification, in this new creation, then we'll see God. Maybe it's just for then, in the future. And we read something like that and go, oh, that's nice, Jesus. That's really big. Must be for the far distant future. Once I die. <laughs> All right. Is the teaching helpful once we die? Have you thought about that? <laughs> like, I just thought of that now. 
when, when, when Jesus teaches a lot of people this stuff, <laughs> isn't that, shouldn't that be helpful for our current state of being? Like, oh, this would be good for you when you're dead. You know, like, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point in knowing that? So I don't believe it's just a future new creation thing. And if we look throughout Scripture, we get another testimony as well. All right? And this is what happens. When we see something that doesn't quite match in Scripture, like Jesus saying, they will see God, and then some other passages saying, you can't see God, we've got to figure out what's going on, don't we? We don't just go, well, the Bible's not true, and throw it out the door and leave our faith, do we? We go, let's wrestle with this. Jesus knew his Bible, his Old Testament. He knew the passage that God told him he can't see God, you know. But he's saying they will see God. But you get another testimony in Scripture anyway. For instance, Adam and Eve, didn't they seem to see God in some kind of way? They knew when he was rocking up or when he was walking out of the garden. To some kind of degree, they saw him. Moses did see the back of God, so he saw him in some kind of way, and, and which is stated that his goodness passed before him. So Moses, to some degree, saw the character of God, saw God, at least in maybe a lesser glory than his face. Jacob, the story we read in Genesis 28 the other day, in his dream, it says at the top of the stairwell or next to it, uh, top of the ladder or next to the ladder, he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. And then in Isaiah 6, there's this incredible scene where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and his robe fills the temple. And there's the angelic host there, angelic beings there as well. This is a throne room encounter where he sees God and then counts himself unworthy until there's a coal that comes and is touched to his lips to make him clean. All right. Ezekiel chapter 1, same thing has a throne room encounter, sees the Lord up on the throne. There are these stories where people have seen God in incredible, glorious ways, amazing ways. John, the Apostle John, saw the glorified Jesus. He's God <laughs> in Revelation chapter 1 and sees God, Jesus, in all his glory. And he's glowing like bronze, which, by the way, is the same kind of description that these other guys made of the Theophanies or when they saw God in this incredible way on the throne. This incredible, splendid, glorious, majestic presence that's indescribable. So throughout Scripture, we've got the testimony of people encountering God and actually seeing him seeing him in what seems to be a fairly, like, you know, we might not say physical, but they're, they're seeing with who they are. They're, they're seeing who God is in an incredible way, not just like a, you know, totally behind the veil kind of way, but the veil kind of lifted way in an incredible way. I mean, people were face-to-face -face with Jesus, but maybe that was a veiled-down kind of way. Uh, but at the transfiguration, he glowed, he was bright, and these three disciples saw that kind of glorified Jesus there too. 
So we've got the testimony throughout Scripture of people encountering God in this incredible way. And most definitely in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, which is a current uh, happening, like all the, the beings, the angelic and other beings around the throne of God, looking at God in the throne room of God. And then in chapter 22, I think it's verse 4, it says that of new creation, we will see him. We will see his face. So yes, it is definitely the final destination when we always are in the fully manifest presence of God, always seeing his face totally uncovered, totally unshielded, totally fully glorious in all kind, you know, in the most way possible. But I believe the testimony of scripture is saying that these glimpses happen now. These glimpses happen now. Seeing God is metaphorical, but not in a way that is lesser than physical seeing. Do you understand what I'm saying? We say, and Jesus says, they will see God. And I believe that just even a physical seeing would be lesser than what Jesus is stating here. Because when we see God, when you see God, He is invisible but you're still seeing him, his essence, his character, his goodness, his splendor, his magnitude, his power. You're seeing the essence of who God is. You're seeing it. And these guys in the Old Testament who saw him were just like undone and changed. And, and an encounter with him changes you in incredible ways. Paul didn't even quite see him, but had kind of an encounter and, and he's changed for the rest of his life. And John, when he sees the glorified Jesus, he's like, whoa, this is too much for me. And the testimony of Scripture is that people do occasionally see God and his amazing nature. It's incredible. You know, we use seeing as a metaphor all the time. Like we say, hey, I see what you mean. We don't see what you mean. We see, we get what you mean, right? Uh, we, we understand, we, we experience seeing like, ah, oh, I see, you know. Oh, I didn't get that, but then I rode in that car and now I see. No, you experience. So seeing is, is a metaphor for understanding, for experiencing, for encountering, for witnessing the effects of, for entering into God's presence. I do think there's a, a seeing as well, like a visual kind of thing for our mind of what these guys experienced. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Who wants to see God? Who wants to see God? I think the crowd splitter comes in Jesus' words when, of what he means when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Okay, get this. This is, this is important. What does having a pure heart mean? What's Jesus mean in this passage? Because a lot of us growing up, we just agree that 
theologically, no one has a pure heart, do they? No one. Anybody want to say their heart's totally pure, perfect? No. We've all got impure motives and thoughts. And you might even be one that quotes Jeremiah 17.9, that the heart is deceitful above all things. You know, the, there's the Bible, talking about our putrid heart, you know. But we've got to remember that this is old covenant talk. Yeah, the heart can be deceitful. That's Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 31 talks about a new covenant coming where God's going to do something in the hearts of those who are in this new covenant. And Ezekiel 36, 26 says, this is just one to remember, that he'll give us a new heart. This is new covenant. He will give us a new heart. Yeah, you can say my heart was stinking and dirty and whatever, but if you're in the new covenant, God's given you a new heart. So the essence of you is not dirty and corrupt. It's a new thing. It's a new heart. Ah, but I still have impure thoughts and motives and whatever. Yes, that's called what Paul calls the flesh. But Paul says, old, the old stuff is gone. The new has come. If anyone's in, in Christ, new creation. New creation. He just says new creation. He doesn't even use a sentence. He's just so excited. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Your Bible says they are a new creation. We add that. <laughs> He's just too excited. He just says new creation. You're new. The old is gone. The new has come. And the new covenant is that Jesus died and done the stuff for us so that we could be given a new heart. So even if we want to look at Jeremiah 17 and say the heart is deceitful above all things, that's old covenant thinking because the new covenant gives us a new heart. And Paul says in Romans 6 that now if you've been crucified with Christ and if you've trusted in Christ, this is what happens. Your sinner man, your sinner woman has been crucified with Christ, dead, put to death, and then raised with Christ into new life. And so Paul says because your sinner side is dead, consider yourself a sinner saved by grace? No. He says, consider yourself dead to sin. If you ever catch one of your Christian brothers or sisters going, I'm so putrid, I'm so terrible, or whatever, just quote Paul Adam and say, you ought to consider yourself dead to sin. Dead. Sin has no power of you. Yes, the flesh, we're still going to have imperfect things. We're still being made Christ-like. Yes, all that. But the core, essential part of who you are has been made new in Jesus. That's good news. That's good news. But I don't think Jesus is referring to all that in this passage. As much as we love importing our theology onto Jesus' teaching, I don't think this is what Jesus means by pure heart. See, Jesus is quoting, while making his own, a psalm. And you'll see that it's pretty close to what we read here when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. He's, I believe he's quoting Psalm 24. Well, not quoting, but borrowing stuff from there and, and representing it. Psalm 23, verse, sorry, Psalm 24 verse 3 to 6, it says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Okay, what's that saying? Who may come before God? Right? The mountain where the temple was, like who may come into his presence, basically is what he's saying. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? 
like where Jerusalem is in the temple, who may stand in his holy place where God's presence is. And here, verse 4, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. And here, the psalmist kind of defines what clean hands and a pure heart mean. Ready? They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Such is the generation of those who seek him and seek your face, God of Jacob. Those with a pure, pure hands and a clean heart, and I believe Jesus is referencing this, blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart are those who seek God. It's not those who have no moral corruption about them at all, who are totally perfect in every way. That's nobody. <laughs> but the pure in heart are those who seek God, who seek to be in his presence, who seek his face, who seek to see him, who seek after him. And so Jesus here is saying, blessed are those who are pure in heart, who are seeking after God, who want to see God, who want to see his face, who want to enter his presence. They will see him. They will see him. They will enter his presence. He wants them to come. He wants people to come into his presence. That's his invitation for all. And I think this is, this is the crowd splitter. Because if we want to sit around and debate what Jesus means, like, blessed are the pure in heart, they all see God. Well, I just don't think theologically we can see God because of this and that and what Timothy says here, whatever. We're kind of missing the heart, aren't we? Like, doesn't it split the crowd and say, even if I don't quite understand that and even how some of these other passages fit in, doesn't it, like, in your heart just go, yes, but whatever that is, I want it. I want to go after God in such a way that I see him, that I experience everything that is available that he wants me to experience of him in this life and the next. Like now, I don't want to put restrictions on it. I don't want to theologize it. It's not about knowledge. It's about a person. And I want to know him so deeply and so badly that whatever it takes, I just want to go after him. And so when Jesus you know, teaches this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Oh God, give me a pure heart. Whatever it is stopping me from seeing you. Like this is the heart of someone, like Jesus is inviting us into God's very presence. Like, where do we sit with that invitation? Does that grow the hunger in our heart? All of you, I think all of you put up your hand. Yeah, I want to see God. Yeah. This excites me and God, and it kind of makes me ask, like, Jesus, if there's anything not pure in here, if there's any ways that aren't seeking you, like, make this heart a heart that is pure, that is seeking after you and seeking your face because I want to see God. I want to see God. A pure heart motivated to seek God, to pursue him in humility and trust. 
And if we're just hooked up that, no, but my heart's impure, think of the work of Jesus. Jesus came to make our hearts clean and pure before God. And when Jesus was pierced in the side, it came apparently near his heart because blood and water came out. And apparently when you die, there's like a layer of blood and water around the heart. I don't know, I'm not a doctor. But, but we see that he was pierced near his heart so that we could have a clean heart. Water came out which throughout scripture is like symbolic of washing clean. And blood came out, which through scripture is symbolic for atonement of sin. Everything's been done so that we can freely enter into God's incredible presence. And when we say that we're too dirty or that our core nature is just warped and sinful, we mock the work of Jesus in our lives. Think about it. I'm just so wretched. Hasn't Jesus done the work for you? Hasn't he given you a new heart? Don't mock the work of Jesus. Don't say that you're just so bad when he's made you new. We, we mock and we degrade the beautiful work of Jesus in our life. See, it's not, it's not we're entering God's presence because we're so good. Entering God's presence has nothing to do with you being good enough. It has everything to do with Jesus being good enough and his work being good enough and his work being finished. Being finished. So let's seek him, church. Let's go after him. Let's have a pure heart. Let's see God. Let's see God together. In real life, let's pursue him. Let's seek after him. Let's respond to him. Who wants to see God? As worship team come up, like who wants to see God? We've got a bit more time to respond. We've got a few songs at the end. Let's respond to God. Let's open our hearts and respond to him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus' invitation. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. God, we desire to see you, to see your impact, your effect, to enter into your presence, to see and experience you, to encounter you more. And Lord, for some in this room, you'll choose that they have quite an encounter where they can actually say, they've seen you, they've seen you. Thank you for the privilege it is. And the possibilities God has opened up, that you've opened up, Father, in Jesus. Thank you, God. We want to worship you now and truly like, go after you and seek you. Father, I pray for a great hunger in every heart right now that we can meet with you in ways that are far beyond our imagination. You've done it before. 
and you continue to do it today. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. We bless your name. We bless your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like more info, please see our website at jbc.org.au. May you know Jesus' presence with you. Have a great day and God bless.